All right, gang, welcome to the True Wealth Radio Show. I know that you have been looking forward to Tuesday all week because not only is it the True Wealth Radio Show, but also tacos. Taco so, t- Who doesn't love Taco Tuesday? Exactly. So you have that to look forward to. Taco Tuesday. It's like the but, cheapest night of the week you can feed your whole family. <laughs> and Taco it's Tuesday. also going to be probably the best day of the week to get your head filled with all kinds of valuable financial knowledge and some of the stuff we're going to talk about too. So oh, welcome. And so we've got a studio full. So Katie Shuck. All right. And Derek Simmons. And Barry Robinson. So we got everybody here today. I have brought in uh, ringers. And this was uh, intentional because, uh, one, it, 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 it saves me from having to um, lean on Katie so heavily to carry the show, right? But also... <laughs> Uh, the burden is so big to bear. Different, different. So we're going to talk about some stuff today. Now we're going to do the traditional format, meaning we got to talk a little bit about the markets, and then we have got a really big one that is like brand new that that uh, everybody needs to. I know they're going to be talking about it, and you, you're going to want to know what this is all about. So uh, first and foremost, the markets. How did the all markets right. do? Yeah, David? by show of hands, markets really? up or down today? <laughs> up. up. Yeah, okay. And they were up. Yeah, so, show of hands doesn't work that well on the radio, Dave. Works great. Okay. This, by the way, <laughs> is a fantastic looking crew today. Barry, thank you for bringing up the average. You're welcome. <laughs> right. So you got to get closer to the mic, too. You, you gotta be You're friendly. welcome. Brilliant. Okay, so. I feel like it's a little controlled I chaos. Raised my hand, that should be enough. <laughs> and our, our listeners appreciate it. Yeah, um, just don't raise your hand off the steering wheel if you're driving, though, yeah, please. So there are, there are a couple of ground rules for listening to the show in the car. One is never close your eyes when we say, close your eyes and picture this, okay? You're don't do that. Not do that. And also keep your hands on the wheel. Safety first. Right. Because, uh, you know, what good is this valuable information if you don't get to hang on to it very long? That's true. Hmm. Aw. Hmm. Deep so, thoughts by yeah, Jack Let's Handy. not do that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, market's pretty good. Uh, it's it's fascinating, you know. There's there's definitely been the last two weeks has been a pretty material pullback. Uh, I'm going to take a quick poll within studio here. Uh, opinions and just shout it out here. What do you think has been the major catalyst for market pullback over the last couple of weeks? I think it'd be China. I think negotiations with China's the up the ups and the downs, and then the pins that have been pulled around, but. Uh, then going up, we've had really good job numbers just continually. Yeah, I mean, th- th- I think that those are those are both good observations because they're almost uh, like opposite each other, right? So it's like, well, to... I see the, the the good news and the bad news in both, right? It's a real mixed bag. You've been talking about the trade wars for the last couple of weeks, so I'm kind of assuming. So well, Dave's, Dave's, Dave's I know, and that's exactly what Is Derek's... that what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, if I would stop it's talking all, about the trade wars, perhaps they would resolve themselves. Is this Is a self-fulfilling the, pro- prophecy kind of thing? <laughs> I don't think I have that level of sway on the markets, candidly. Uh, you know, I'm just calling it, sort of calling it like I see it. But no, Derek, I think you're right. Uh, what do you think, Barry? I agree with every word Derek Simmons ever says. <laughs> okay. Well, that could wow. be dangerous. That, that was a lot power. of... I know. <laughs> we just lit a candle that can't unlight. <laughs> but I do agree that the underlying economic data has helped sustain the market that it would have fallen much further had we not had the strong growth. Fair enough. Good point. And I, I think the uh, the economic data is really fascinating because if you look at it, by and large, 
uh, there's a couple things that I'm paying attention to. Uh, so you look at a lot of different data and you can look at it from a lot of different points, but let's take two independent points. One of them would be uh, the look at the same data that the Federal Reserve's looking at. Right, so if we look at economic data from the Federal Reserves, and there's uh, several of them across the country, and they're you know regionally grouped, and they all report different data, and then they all get together and they try to formulate monetary policy. First, so how much are they going to raise or lower interest rates and bank reserve requirements and so forth? And the idea is that they're helping to control how much money is being lent into the economy. Okay, and if it's really cheap to borrow money, you're making money more available which is supposed to be stimulative in nature. Right. And if money is very expensive, then, then it's it should harder. be more regressive in nature. Right. right. So that's their way of sort of putting the brakes on an economy that's getting too hot. Why would we do that? Why, why, why do you bother to ever cool off a hot economy? Thanks for asking my question. Fears oh. of inflation. <laughs> okay. So give me... Uh, wh Barry, can why you explain inflation? that a little further? Yeah. yeah like what, what happens... As far as because there's a mechanical process now. What what folks may not know is Barry's got banking history, so I'm, I brought in a ringer for a reason. But he wasn't prepared for the question, so I am excited to see you answer this. So, how does inflation manifest in the economy? Well, as prices of goods and services increase, therefore our purchasing power goes down, and if it goes up too fast, then it erodes the value of the dollar, and we actually lose ground instead of gain by the inflation. Sure, and. If there was a specific catalyst in banking that you think can lead to rapid inflation, what do you think it would be? Cheap money. All right. So I'm going to draw the connection for our listeners real briefly. Uh, when money's really cheap, then it's easy to get. Well, we have a, a banking system that allows money to be leveraged. Okay. So when money is put on deposit, the banks loan the majority of it back out. So is this kind of like the whole real estate thing that we saw back in between like 05 and 08, like where people were going into banks and it was really easy to get loans on properties and the values were going up really rapidly? Well, th that's true. They were, it was easy to get loans and values were going up rapidly, but I don't think it was tied specifically to interest rates. Yeah, it, so that I think was more about a policy issue where the documentation required to validate that the borrower could pay the loan was sort of not required in many cases. They just looked at it and said, well, the property is going to be worth more. That can stand alone as our collateral, so we don't need to document income in the loans. So those are really risky loans. I mean, if you think about bankers and you think about, if you want to go get a loan right now, they're going to ask for like a ream of documentation and your firstborn. Right. I, I think, and maybe your second also. Uh, yeah. And a, and a blood and a thumbprint. <laughs> right. I mean, they're going to ask for things where you're going to start to question like, hey. Do I really why, want this loan? <laughs> why do you need that? Like uh, a DNA swab, what? But, you know, it's getting to that level because they want to make sure that borrowers have the ability to pay that money back. So how has that changed with regulations um, as far as now you're seeing commercials for like rocket loans and different things like that where people are trying to do more lending online? I mean, is it still the amount of same hurdles that people would um, – see, I guess, in a standard brick and mortar building, like if you were to walk into a local bank and apply for a home loan versus doing something online, are you going through the same process or is it different? Well, we are. It's not, it's different because we're going back to traditional banking and lending risk assessments that was abandoned for about a decade okay. in the late 1980 or 98 to about 2005 or somewhere in there because 
public policy was to get people into housing regardless of their ability to pay. And therefore, we made decisions on the federal level that affected the banks to lower their standards to make more loans. And so is the public policy. Today, we've gone back to more traditional banking, although the regulation is much more severe today. But it's not really based on that basic risk question. The risk question now is you verify your income, you verify your credit, you verify the value of the home, can you pay it back? The difference today is people are actually moving into houses, where back in the 05, 06, 07, people were speculating on houses. Right, they were trying to flip them flip for them a profit. With that increase in value, like David just said. Therefore, with people actually, we have a lot of pent-up demand, especially like in Douglas County. March 2019 was an increase in housing, about 11% over uh, the same period of 18, and it was the best March in the history of RMLS keeping track since 2001. So when you say increase in housing, you mean as far as availability Num on the market? Number of closings. Oh, okay. So March closings were greater than any other March since 2001. Wow. But people are actually moving into housing because there's a pent-up demand for housing. They're not buying them and flipping them and selling them. So like more of a long-term buy and hold. Yes. Okay. Well, it, yeah, more of buy the house for residents. Yeah. So, I mean, and residents not, theoretically is a buy and hold, but I don't, I don't want to confuse our listener with the idea that it's it's the fact that somebody's occupying the property that's what makes it different. Right. right? Uh, but let's kind of go back. Let's rewind to your first question. And so you said, go oh, kind of like this. So there's this backdrop where you can say, okay, I mean, we just illustrated one, supply and demand for real estate. Right. Part of the supply and demand variable is access to capital. Okay. Right. And when we go back to banking, we have what we call a fractional reserve banking system, meaning that the banks don't have to keep a dollar on deposit for every dollar they loan. They have to put a percentage out. Now, talking about inflation, what the concern is about runaway inflation is that you have interest rates set at such a point that the banks can loan out money and then the borrower takes some of that money, does some investing, and then puts the money in another bank, and the bank treats that as a deposit, and it loans it out again. And so each time some of that deposit gets sprinkled to another bank, each bank gets to loan out more money. And what you've done is you've magnified the about amount of credit in circulation. That's more dollars chasing the same amount of tangible goods which means you so, can drive pricing. That's how you drive the real estate price, right? Is everybody has access to money so they can pay too much for a house. Too much is, of course, the improper in the high, term. because it's of everybody except for the seller. Right, because, <laughs> because really it's a supply and demand issue. And what they said right. is, well, what we did is we affected demand's ability to access. So demand can drive the price higher because supply didn't change. Right. So that's what happens is more dollars chasing the same number of goods. The Federal Reserve, one of their mandates, one of, and this is fascinating because they're now discussing whether or not, uh, they have two mandates at the federal level, right? Uh, or the, the Federal Reserve level. One of them is low unemployment. Check. Yeah, right? done. I mean, we're, we're there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we can have discussions about the people that have permanently left the workforce where they are still capable of working. We could have a discussion about underemployment where people have jobs, but it's not adequate for their needs. And I'm not 100% sure that it's easy to draw a straight line between interest rates and employment. Well, that's the real question, right? So, the because the other element the Fed is supposed to look at is in their dual mandate is the inflation rate. 
which is traditionally measured by the consumer price index, which also is not traditional, just so we're clear. That, that index has been changed many times over the years. But the idea is the Federal Reserve is supposed to control those two things. And Derek, I think you bring up a really astute point, but we do have this uh, clock ticking where we have to take breaks. So what I want to do is grab our first break and then come back and let's unpack that a little bit more, which is should the Fed be worried about the unemployment rate? Everybody should. Right. So we'll be covering that and more good stuff when we come back. Stick around. This is True Wealth with David Littlejohn. Katie Sheck. Derek Simmons. Barry Robinson. And all of you listeners. We'll be right back on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Well Show, where we got a studio full today. It's organized chaos in here, let me tell you. Indeed it is. So a bunch of special guests, and you'll just uh, you'll have to go back and get names on podcasts where it breaks and that kind of stuff. But right now we're jumping into it because we have covered some ground, and I just have this sense that there's going to be a lot more to cover today. Uh, talking about the Federal Reserve, Derek, you asked this really interesting question at the break about I was pointing out they have this dual mandate between maintaining low inflation rates but also low unemployment. And you kind of said, well, I'm not so sure they should be involved with unemployment. And I'm not sure there's a uh, there's not a direct connection between interest rates and employment as far as I can see. So I, there- I, I could make an argument that there's an indirect connection, but it surprises me almost to hear that that's part of the mandate. Yeah, well, this is what's really fascinating uh, and I don't normally track this stuff like a uh, hawk or anything, but I just happen to, uh, you know, I, I'm listening to like my flash briefings in the morning on my whatever device we shall not name that is connected online, <laughs> smart home device. Uh, and it will, and so, you know, say, so, hey, you know, I'm They're not advertisers? The is that what you're telling me? Not only that, right. but I don't want to accidentally light one up for somebody in the background. That's really irritating. But uh, <laughs> it, it, the point is that, so as I'm listening, I hear an interview done with Mike Pence. And one of the things that he brings up is the discussion, you know, uh, the Trump administration and Donald Trump specifically has been beating the drum that he believes interest rates should be lowered even further. Yeah, as, as conceptually, he w- he believes that that would be more stimulative for economic growth, and in theory, he's correct. And here's the really interesting part, but that we'll we'll unpeel here. But Pence said, you know, maybe it's not appropriate. Maybe it's time to evaluate whether or not there should be a dual mandate. And I think two things happen when I share this information. Depending on the side of the aisle people fall on, they go like, "Oh my gosh, you know, we can't do that just because." it goes against my political belief structure or we have people kind of going well yeah we should do it because it goes with my political belief structure and i want to go like let's pretend that there's no politics at all i think your point is valid that i'm not sure the fed has a ton of influence over the employment rate directly they can influence money supply and that can indirectly influence but the inflation link i think is a little a little bit more directly correlated. Right, I see that. And what's fascinating to me right now is if you were to look at what's going on in the Federal Reserve, I can actually see both points. Now, let's let's pour two different hats for a minute and we'll play a little game with all of our listeners. Let's pretend that you are either uh, A, a business owner in the economy, or B, you are the Federal Reserve chairman. Okay, so you have to wear 
two radically different hats here. You've got two different vantage points here. So as a business owner, so let's start with you, Barry. Let's uh, yeah. I say, let's make Barry the yeah, business yeah. owner and, okay, and well, Derek yeah, the Derek, chairman. You get to be the Fed. Barry, you get to be the I business was owner. A banker. I always wanted to be the Fed chair. Is right. this like right, so you could be the Fed chair? He's so, the Fed so chair. Barry will play. Why Fed. do I feel like we're fighting over monopoly pieces? Okay. You can be the I, shoe. I am the race car. The top hat. You can be a race car, okay? Who gets the thimble? Uh, so, Derek, then you play the business owner. I'm the business owner. Barry, you get to be the Fed. And so what I want you to <laughs> defend here is, first of all, if the Fed would like to raise interest rates, explain to me, Barry, why would you like to raise interest rates? Personally, I wouldn't want to. No, I was kidding. Because, Why would it be a good thing to raise interest rates? Well, interest rates raising, one impact it has is we do have a great amount of savers in this country. And by in, raising interest rates, it allows them to earn more interest in banks. Uh, the other thing it does is that it, by raising the cost of funds, it, the supply and demand that David said, it does slow the economy, which at the current time I wouldn't suggest as Fed chair. So I am going against your... Your theory here, I don't want to raise interest rates. No. Okay. Now that, which is actually a perfectly reasonable answer. So let me ask you. But can I explain that? Y yes. And I'm going to, I want to ask one other question and you can tackle them both. Okay. So the question is, do you feel like you still have enough policy tools at your disposal to manage the economy with inflation rates set where they're at? And that's the underlying great question there. And what tools do the Fed have? One, with the interest rates being low, we need kind of a new model in how we measure interest rates because the cost of funds is much cheaper than it historically has been. Technology has brought down risk. Technology has brought down the cost of funds, the brick and mortar. So in banking in itself, historically an 8% mortgage rate was a good rate, and now let's say it's 4% or 5%, wherever we want. But that was because banks considered 2% profit, 2% risk, 2% brick and mortar and 2% cost of funds. Well, each of those through technology has come down. So actually cost of money is a lot less today than historical. So can you really say 4% is not the new 8%? So isn't that kind of when I was asking a little bit earlier about online bank applications? Because you don't have to go into a brick and mortar building anymore to apply for a home loan. That's, that's true. Although I'm going to bridge the gap here for a moment, I, there's still real banks making loans. So an online application, uh, my my assessment, let me just throw in my two cents briefly, is the online application process for a loan is really a response to a demographic. It's a millennial generation that's now beginning to reach that home ownership stage of life. And uh, what what re, which a lot of research will tell you is that millennials initially want to interact at arm's length. They don't dislike human interaction, but they are really prone toward going through particularly mobile devices. But if they have to, they'll slog through and actually use a computer. But they'll do a lot of online research first before they ever engage with the person. And so uh, these online applications that are a streamlined digital application were specifically designed for that millennial generation to try to start capturing that. And the evidence is that they've been proliferating, and that's a lot of their clientele. But they also, you know, it's a lot easier online to advertise to anybody, and so and on the radio and so forth. So you, you know, if somebody says, "Hey, you got a great deal on a mortgage," then what do you do? You go check it out. The reality is, I believe, and we don't have any mortgage representatives here, although Barry, you see them all the time. I don't believe you get a better mortgage 
using an online than you do using a brokered solution, but you can do a lot more of it self-directed, which is demographically something that we see a lot more with the millennial generation right I'm now. I'm also, I'm curious about who owns the online platforms. It wouldn't surprise me to find banks, you know, regular banks behind them. There, well, there are, and most of these are like, they're owned by Quicken, right? You know, or Intuit, big, big software firms and so forth. And they're still, by and large, working through banks. And the vast, vast majority of loans are still federally backstopped through like Fannie Mae and so forth. So uh, there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, in fact, Fannie Mae is probably, what do they have, you know, 85% of the mortgage market or something? Yeah, it's quite so, a bit, right? But I, I want to come back and talk for a minute about why you wouldn't want to lower them too well, far. Yeah, so, well, that's the flip side. So, you know, that was Katie's question, but the original premise is, so Derek, you're a business owner, right? And you're suggesting let's not... Yeah, I'm. I'm about to play. I'm about to give the the Fed line. Okay. Okay. Let's. So here we go. But the thing is that if if we uh, cut interest rates anymore, and then the economy slows down for some other reason, we have no more tools. If you've if you've used all your gasoline setting the current fire, and then suddenly you find you need more fire, there's nothing you can do about it. Which is, Ooh, that's yeah. a very good picture. Well, that's an interesting scenario because that's actually what was happening in 17 with uh, the previous chair president or chair, Fed chair, uh, Yeltsin, Yellen. Uh, she, Yellen, thank yep. you. She was playing that game. She said, we're going to slow it down. We're going to raise interest rates. We're going to use these tools now so we have something to draw on later. And that didn't seem to be a good strategy. So as a Fed chairman today, that's not my policy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now, and I'm going to actually throw something else out there, which is uh, I think the Fed has more tools than most people are aware of. I, I think would agree. most of what we see is that the Federal Reserve controls the interbank overnight lending rate. And so they set that rate. And so what we see is, okay, they've set interest rate policy. But what the market has done is responded uh, relatively, uh, I guess, it, it's, it's almost ignored the Fed and, and it's setting its own interest rates right now. And that's what's fascinating is that, you know, the Fed has been trying to uh, to use a term reload the gun. Right. Well, we need to push rates up a little bit so we have more wiggle room. I was sort of cheating you there, trying to see if Barry would take the bait when I said, well, what would you do with policy? Do you want to have more tools or not? And he said, no, I'm good here. To which I go, Barry, you sly dog, you. <laughs> but uh, I, I got to give him credit. Uh, but at the same time, I want to let folks know the Fed has more tools because not of Janet Yellen, but Ben Bernanke before her. And he introduced something called quantitative easing. Ah, the QE. The QE program. And, and quantitative easing is a, a more complex component. But how do interest rates really get set? Oh, good question. Right. The, the market sets them. Right. The, the it's, it's based on the supply and demand at various durations or lengths of time that you're going to be investing or tying up capital. So if I were to turn around and ask you, Derek, what as, as a business owner or as Derek, okay, okay how much how long are you willing to tie up money in a loan where you can't touch it? Not very long at this particular 
Okay. Time. What if I was going to give you 20% guaranteed rate of return for I'd it? I'd tie it up for some time. Okay. Yeah, that would be reasonable. Right? And so isn't it funny how at the right price, all of a sudden you go, you know what? That's a pretty good risk premium. I'll take it. Now, I have a different question to kind of a little hitch to throw in there. When you said, no, not right now until he said 20%, what, what were the factors that were helping you make that decision? Was it based on your age? Was it based on your socioeconomic background? Like, would you have made a different decision if you were older or younger? Well, I, I probably would. I mean, I, I'm going to become, uh, my, my, my event horizon is going to change as I get older. And the closer it gets, the less risk I want to take and the less I am worried about growth. You know, I, I need a little growth when I get older, but I, I am way more worried about safety. Um, or sustainability. As like I'm younger, you know, if I've got 20 years until I'm retiring, then you know, it, things can go up and down, and I'm just not that worried about it. Aha. And see, you're unpacking the great mystery of the markets, right? What is the stock market or the bond market or any market, for that matter, doing? It's supply and demand, and a big influencer is the risk associated. So when I ask you, would you tie up money for a long time in the current economic conditions, you say, no. Uh, and yet... A 10-year treasury right now is below 2.5%, which means if you were to lock up money for 10 years, you're going to make less than 2.5% interest. Okay, that may not, although interestingly enough, that exceeds inflation right now, as is currently recorded at the Federal Reserve. So who is setting the interest rate? Is it the Federal Reserve or the market? Well, the, mar the Federal Reserve sets one, and then the market has a lot of ties to it. Right. The market prices risk. And this is what the Fed is probably most worried about, is losing a handle on the market to where the market kind of says, I don't care what you do. We're pricing risk our own because you're not pricing it right. Ooh, that sounds like that, a fight ready to happen. Yeah, well, that's a spot where the Fed does not want to be. So the Fed does have this other big bazooka that it can use, right, in the form of QE. So quantitative easing, but how does it work? you're not going to tell us about that, are you? No, I'm going to make you wait until after the break, and then I'm going to explain, you know how the Fed could pull these strings, and it might be beneficial and it might not? Stick around and we'll cover it. This is David Littlejohn. Katie Sheck. Derek Simmons. Barry Robinson. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240. KQEN. All right, welcome back to the True Wealth Show, where we are talking about bazookas. Bazookas. QE bazookas. That is my favorite bubblegum. <laughs> and that's exactly what we were talking about. <laughs> you know, there's another topic I want to move on to quickly, but I can't leave this one hanging because we've been having such a constructive dialogue about how the Fed is interacting with our economy. And I'm going to try to tie all this together. We talked about the Federal Reserve and these tools that they have and the issue of the economy. There's this big question about should we or shouldn't we lower, you know, raise or lower interest rates? And the, on the one hand, people will say, that, you know, the Fed wants more tools in the bag, so they'd like to raise interest rates. Uh, on the other hand, we're not seeing any kind of inflation in the economy right now. We could talk about why, but I don't want to go there today. I think everybody's answer is whether or not they're trying to gain interest with their own money. Like, are you depositing your money? So, of course, you'd be all for raising interest rates if you want to get paid more interest. But if you're going to borrow money, then everybody wants it lower. 
Yeah, but you know, it's playing checkers. What you? It's like if you think about it that personally. It's not, I know it's what, checkers what it and not say, chess. Like, well, sure, that's everybody wants to get paid better for themselves. But when you talk about how are you influencing the entire economy, right? But there's another tool in the bag the Federal Reserve has. It is direct manipulation of the supply and demand curve through the demand side of the curve. What, that's what quantitative easing is. The Federal Reserve can buy with money that they print <laughs> bonds issued by the government. So they're buying their own stuff. In essence, they are printing money by doing that. We will, the, the Treasury prints a bond, the Federal Reserve purchases it, holds it on their balance sheet, and what happens to interest rates? They drive them down. Why? Because it's a giant demand pool. I was waiting for the, Derek and Barry to jump in there, and they were I, all I heard was crickets. <laughs> yeah, I'm, if, I'm running a business here, people. Yeah, I don't have if, time for this. I'm yeah, policy. So you uh, <laughs> set it closer to the mic. All right. So the the point is that the Federal Reserve has other tools at their disposal, and there's another one that we don't have time to talk about today, including negative interest rates which is going on in Europe. I was going to say, it's happening in France, right? Yeah, and Germany. Negative interest rate policy, or NERP, fun acronym, right? That just, so, that just sounds bad altogether. Well, but here's the tie together. What it does is it theoretically drives money into investment. If you go to negative interest rates, it costs you money to keep it on deposit. Yeah, the people banks charge you to hold your money. Yeah, then so people aren't going to keep money in that. the bank. They're going to put it wherever else they can. And then the banks also have to pay... Uh, that paid people to take loans, which that's a little wacky. There's probably so much spread that it wouldn't be quite that, but the loans would get even cheaper is what it comes down to. That's so crazy. negative interest rate policy is a wacky world to try out. But uh, anyway, so that's that was the that's the conclusion of this topic today, because there is another one that's just, as a business owner. I want to talk about this gross receipt tax. That was see, you like how he set that up. I love there was it. No setup whatsoever. Like, He's just we're going to talk off. about this. I d I've been talking Swung about it for anyway. The fences. Yeah, I want to talk it's about coming. it some more. Um, you know, as the Fed chair, I want to talk about it too. Perfect. So what? What? What <laughs> as is the host of the show? I want to talk about this. <laughs> what is the gross receipt? Well, first, remember we're going to talk about this in an, in an interesting context. Global marketplace, but local rules. What? Keep this in the back of your mind, everybody listening. Global marketplace, local, local rules. rules. Okay. Okay? Because remember, we have set rules that we will apply to ourselves that somebody else may not apply to themselves. So we could be, and I'm not even hinting at this, changing the playing field so it is no longer level. Okay? Now- To our favor or to our to disadvantage? My, to my favorite attorney in the room, Derek Simmons, Watkinson Laird. Uh, what- is the gross receipts tax. What just happened? All right. So what happened was that the Oregon legislature approved a tax that is on all gross receipts. So as a business owner, that means when somebody pays me, boom, it's receipts. And because it's gross, that means I don't get to deduct the costs. I don't get to deduct rent that I pay. I don't get to deduct employees you pay. Employees, anything. Cost nothing. of goods. None of the costs it took to earn the money. It's, it's gross. Just, it's yeah. before I, any deductions. So it's a gross receipts on everything over a million dollars. And then they exempted a couple of things. Groceries and, and uh, Gasoline. fuel. Yeah. But that's pretty much it. Yeah, but when you think about the farm that grows the groceries, 
Do they get screwed? <laughs> yeah, they do. They, they do. do. So it's think just about, the grocery think stores. About the cost it's not of the agriculture itself. They're thinking, oh, well, we'll exempt the grocery store, so the consumer's not going to pay it. Because what this looks a lot like to me is a phantom sales tax. Oh, that's exactly what it is. Right. It's oh, it's this. You know, and remember, voters shot that down. And let me talk about what, how you can see that it's a sales tax. So if I have a business where I make nothing, I, I sell exactly two million dollars. Uh, I sell my goods for exactly $2 million. I pay out exactly $2 million in, uh, in labor Expenses. and rent and cost of goods. So I, I brought in gross $2 million and I paid out $2 million in costs, but I have to pay this tax. Yeah, the problem is now it's a sales tax on the business owner. Where, where does the money come from? Where am I going to get the money to pay taxes? You're going to either have to, if there's enough elasticity in your product, you're going to have to raise the price of the product to cover the tax. Well, I, I, and I'm going to, that's what I have to do. If I'm at, if I'm at 2 million already in costs and 2 million in receipts, I have to raise the costs raise taxes, right. raise the cost. But of if you bring in more money from the sale of goods with a higher price, you're still going to owe more tax. Yeah, it's going to get worse. I'm right. going to have to like raise that's it not really going to get better. Well, I mean, that's not a that sounds like a solution, well, but it's not really percent. a solution. Yeah, tax is a percentage, though, of the revenue. Right. Yeah. But so, I mean, so it will get passed on to the consumer. But here's why I was very careful with my word choice. It depends on the elasticity of your product. Okay, elastic, elasticity is an economic term in this case. It means how much can the price of something fluctuate in the marketplace? Or how much can somebody raise the price of something before it starts to be detrimental to their consumer base? So as an example, okay, if, if you were dealing with a product that's sold across the country online and you manufacture it in the state of Oregon now, it just costs you more to run your business. Well, if somebody else can run the same business somewhere else without the gross tax, they now have a competitive advantage in pricing where they could squeeze you. If, if there's not enough margin in your product, you could literally find yourself in a game where people use a substitute product and you're done. Yeah. Or the business owners consider moving out of state. And so it takes the revenue and the jobs and everything else well, that's with the it. Other, but certain out businesses can't move. For example, timber. All those trees, they don't move. What? Not unless you cut them you down. You can't just pack them up and take them out? Not last I checked. That would be really interesting. <laughs> Come on. I've seen the, the Wunzler. <laughs> Timber is a good example, but I, I am just irritated that we have passed a sales tax. And well, there's no we about this. Well, we I, I say we because we are the state of Oregon. We elected people. They did this. So, we so did it did it. pass or it didn't this, pass? This is something I heard Bruce Hanna do one time. He said, look, we just approve new taxes. And then he said, and I have to say we, because I'm in the legislature. So we, the state of Oregon, did approve new taxes, and it turned out to be, it's going to end up being a sales tax. Even though we, the state of Oregon, rejected a sales yeah. tax not we, too very we, long We, the voters, ago. rejected this. Yes. But our legislature, and I will you know, mention, along party lines with the supermajority, put this in place yes the legislature approved this and 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 we're all going to be stuck with it there is an argument that we could that that it would not be constitutional or uh you know it'll be challenged in court but i have not yet seen a good argument that it's going to be an illegal way to do it it seems to be an end around that's that would fly 
I will point out that at one point or another, apparently nine other states have put in place gross receipts taxes, and four of those nine have since removed them because it was so destructive to their economic output. So could this, I know it's a different topic, but could this be like when everybody was talking about gross wages and then Seattle raised their gross wages drastically and then it kind of backfired a little bit? Well, I mean, the, that's... the backfire part, I think, yes. I think there will be unintended consequences. They're, they're tied together in that there's some economic principles at play where essentially what we're trying to do, and I'm using Derek's we, right? The, what the legislature is attempting to do, as best I can discern, is to use the instrument of government to manipulate the marketplace. But in so doing, they're what I believe is ignoring the invisible hand of economics. And particularly, they're ignoring the fact that there's a lot of substitute products in other domiciles, meaning you can go somewhere else and get a lot of these products. Uh, you know, gasoline and groceries, maybe not so much, but the, the manufacture of goods within the state of Oregon, this is going to be really difficult on manufacturers who oftentimes operate on very thin margins, but large numbers to, to be profitable. So Oregon kind of just shot itself in the foot as far as competitiveness nationwide. Yeah. And what it was trying to do, what the legislature thought it was doing, what, what it said it was doing was we're taxing the big guys. We're only taxing the people that have huge sales. So it's the big companies are going to pay. None of the rest of you are. Well, if that were the case, then why not make the gross something like a hundred million? million? Yeah, make it a lot higher. Because at one million dollars, that's not a. I mean, you know, you could have a, a ten-person business has to do a million dollars in order to exist. I, I hear you, but that that argument I think misses the point of it's going to be a sales tax no matter where we set it. Oh, because absolutely. the bigger absolutely. the bigger the companies are, the, the easier more, they can pass it through. The more consumers are buying from them, right? So it's going to hit more people. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. You're, you're going to hit people no matter what. And it's going to be the consumers that are going to pay this. Well, can't we just raise everybody's minimum wage so that they can afford it? <laughs> yeah, it's circular. It's circular. We can keep messing with one thing at a time, but the market's going to address, is going to react with the other portions that it has to. Yeah, it's, well, and we don't have the time to go into today the concept of every time you raise minimum wage, but you also pinch at the top line, which is what you're doing when you tax gross revenues, you essentially engineer something called wage inflation. And I encourage you to go on Google if you don't understand what that is. Or, or, or Sorry, it's wage compression, not wage inflation, but wage compression, which is the difference between the folks that are the particularly skilled and high in the organization and the folks that are entry level. They get closer and closer together in compensation because there's not the revenue to pay people. Well, at some point, you start to lose the people in the organization because they're, you can't afford to pay to retain talent. Well, and just because the people at the bottom go up doesn't mean that everybody everybody goes up or wrong. Like on a ladder. Well, they can't. There's not enough dollars. Right. And then if you add this ridiculous tax on top of it, there's even fewer dollars. Because the key to economic growth are really simple. Confidence and productivity. And productivity is driven primarily by capital. And you invest in your business with capital and equipment and people to grow your business. You produce more goods and services. You make more money. The economy grows. If you put any artificial barrier to that which is this tax then all of a sudden you slow economic growth and so like in our county 
where you have all these timber companies who in the recession were losing money, but yet their gross receipts were still really high. So you've just added another burden that would have been another employee. So instead of paying another employee and keeping them on salary, you're sending money to the state. And letting that employee go, which is just another employee employee on And this is why I support... Uh, this is why I support him for Fed chair. That's just absolutely <laughs> Barry for right. Fed chair. Here do we, we go. Have, yeah, do we have an Oregon band? We don't. All right. <laughs> Look, we got to grab our last break. We got a couple of key points left that I want to bring up here on this one. So we're not done. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn, I'm Katie Sheck, Derek Simmons, Barry Robinson. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the home stretch of the True wealth radio show where we got a house full and all right i'm gonna tee you up on this one derek there's this gross receipts tax but don't worry only the corporations are gonna pay it right no corporations don't pay taxes people do what, what? yes because explain Mr. okay derek let's Simmons. suppose that a corporation actually does pay taxes where does the money come from the shareholders the shareholders don't get it right that's the key it's the shareholders are the people that pay the taxes, even if they're just paying it as corporate owners. Right. Individuals pay all the taxes at the end. And so for people that are not shareholders, what is a shareholder really quick, David? Uh, an well, owner of a corporation. Yeah, own, I'm not owner David, of a corporation. But, but yeah. Well, I was but, asking but him. But ultimately, so you can answer it. the taxes will be borne by the people. Right. right. So the, the owners of the corporation will pay it. Right. So our organization is an S corporation. Right. So we have revenue that comes in. We pay all of our expenses, including salaries and rent and all the other software and the people that run that. They get it paid out of that. You know, all the economic drivers that go through it. And then what's left, that gets to be Dave's income. And then I pay taxes on it. Right. So I'm going to pay the taxes. The people that got paid out paid the taxes. All of the money that's taxable flowed through, and if I didn't, if it was spent in the business somewhere else, it went to that company, and they washed it through their system to pay taxes on it. It's not like the money doesn't get taxed. Right. It gets taxed. So if you make it more expensive by saying, let's tax gross receipts, what did you do? You increase the cost of operating for that company, which will then be passed on to the customer base so that they can stay in business. So what was like what was the thinking behind gross versus net receipts? Like why not net receipts? Politically sellable. Is that really what it was? It's literally what it is because it sounds like what you're telling people is Well, I'm gonna I think the reason that it's gross versus net is it's more money. Well, sure, on that side of it, but why would you even do it as a tax? A corporate tax makes it sound like people aren't paying it. When you say, well, we need to tax corporations more, there's a bunch of people that go, yeah, they're big and they make tons of money and it's not fair. So it's really politically sellable. I feel like that's the whole stick it to the man. It's stick totally it to the man. <laughs> stick it to the man. It's a political strategy to collect more taxes. Here's what baffles me. I don't know how many years in a row now, whether it's six or seven or what, but we've had record tax revenues every year for like seven plus years in the state of Oregon. The most tax we've ever, ever collected. Well, that's because unemployment's down, and so you have more people working and more people contributing to taxes, right? Right, but how could they possibly need more? This actually was really funny. So uh, Oregon legislature passes the gross receipts tax, and then a couple days later, the economic forecasters come out and say, and you're going to have a banana, just a bonanza of, of kicker 
it's going to be a gigantic kicker because our receipts have been enormous and unexpected. So they're going to take in more money just to give more of it back. Well, they're, they're not. Well, right now they're trying to change the rules to not give it back. They're actually trying to keep most of the kicker right now. Uh, but, you know, and that's a whole separate issue of so Oregon sets this tax rate, but they've also set a budget rate. And when they, they collect way more taxes than the, what they budgeted a need for. So what they're saying to the taxpayer initially is, look, here's the budget. If we come in under budget, or in this case, if we set our budget and we bring in way more taxes than that, we overtaxed you, so we'll send it back. That's the kicker. But what they're saying is, well, we want to expand programs, so we don't want to give the kicker back. We want to spend more in the government. But the problem now is, what are you saying if the government's already at record revenues? What they're saying is, we need to expand and expand and expand more. And my question is, Why? at what point when we, I, I know we're like top five for the number of total government employees as a percentage of the population in the state of Oregon. Like it's, so when does the government get so big that it eats the private sector? Because government doesn't generate revenue. It collects taxes from the private sector and government employees are getting paid too. So, I mean, they're paying their taxes as well. But the government itself, it doesn't pay the taxes, right? It pays people that pay taxes. But where's it come from? The private sector has to generate it. So when does the government eat the private sector? That's a great question. Carrie? I think I think we should make a movie. A movie? The government that ate the private. Well, actually, nobody wants to go see that. Thing. <laughs> well, the no, they don't. The difference between the Not state unless you're government, giving them Xanax as they go in. <laughs> yeah, but state government versus federal government. Federal government has a printing press. They can cover up their bad behavior longer. But the That's states, true. The states can't. Right. You know, they've kind of hidden it in an underfunded PERS obligation. But all these big tax increases, where do they go? Most of it's going into the PERS program and it's still not enough to fund it. It's still upside down. So we have we have an appetite problem with our government, folks. And I don't care which side of the political aisle you're on. It's real. You can see it in the in the budget process. Well, you will see you will see price increases that are directly related to this gross receipts tax. And you may not realize it, but it's going to happen. Ah. Yeah, it's real. And on that note, all I can tell you is uh, good luck and you know, become informed about this stuff because you, the say, voter, are helping make the decision. Elections have consequences, right? And they affect costs and so forth. So, all right, that's the music. We got to go. Thank you guys for joining me. Derek, you're at Watkinson Laird, 673-5528. Barry, at Maritile, 672-6651. And Katie, we're at... 541-375-0898, Little John Financial Services. All right, gang. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it as always. And for all of you listening, uh, don't forget we got it on podcast too. Until next time, this has been David Littlejohn with True Wealth. News Radio 1240, KQEN.